0: Let's open with some prayer before we open the word. We thank you, God, for your word, that it's powerful, that it's quick, it's alive, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between soul and spirit. We ask for that to take place today, that the Spirit of God, through the power of the word of God, would change us so that we can become more like the Son of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So our text for today is Matthew 22, Verses 34 to 40, the title of what we're going to be talking about today kind of gives you an idea, is the priority of relationship. The priority of a relationship, but let's, uh, let's look at Matthew 22, we'll jump right into the text. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, it's up on the screen, or you can pull out your phone, or if you have a Bible, you can use that as well. Imagine that, how quaint paper On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There is nothing more important to the heart of God than relationship. There is nothing more important to the heart of God than relationship. So what is this verse saying besides the obvious command to love? What it's saying is that our ministry and our life as a whole will fall short of God's best for us and for his kingdom if relationship, people in particular, is not at the center of everything that we do, but not just people. What we first notice is that Jesus is clearly saying here that the only law that you and I are bound by that is under this new covenant of grace because of his cross and the gospel of his cross is the law of love. And that principle is repeated dozens of times throughout the entire New Testament. If we want to see it most clearly, we can look in the book of 1 John. We'll be referring to a couple of verses there later on. But of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus summarized all of them, all 613 in one command. But that command has two aspects, according to Jesus. Two sides of the same coin, if you will, the coin of Love, right? Um, Let's call it the currency or the underlying principle of the kingdom of God. But what I want us to see here is that behind and underneath that principle of love is the priority of relationship. You'll see why in a few minutes. Love is the core principle, but relationship is the priority of God for life and for ministry that needs to be governed by that core principle of love. According to Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures, which, by the way, he authored, so he ought to know, uh, there is no greater priority in the mind and heart of God than relationship. Not just love, but a relationship governed by love. Because that is exactly what is described here. When we love, there is always an object of that love. Just like when we have faith, there's always an object of that faith. Unlike that silly thing that people said back in the 60s when I was growing up, keep the faith. Faith in what? It always has an object. It does not merely stand alone. Love is not just some philosophical or even theological concept that exists all by itself. Love is always something that is held and then demonstrated in relationship to something or to someone else. We never say, I love, and then just stop there, do we? We don't do that. We say, I love something or someone. There's always an object, a recipient, a beneficiary of our love. To say that love is the most important thing is to say that relationship is the most important thing. A declaration of love, for instance, for someone or something that is genuine, not pretending, will be borne out in an intentional pursuit. And that Those words are going to come out a little bit later. You'll see that. An intentional pursuit of a deeper relationship with love's object. So you don't say, I love you at the altar, and then follow up with, uh, maybe I'll see you next week if I'm not too busy. Right? Your public commitment to the covenant of marriage is a from this day forward, right, till death do us part kind of thing. That declaration of love assumes that we're acknowledging a profound, a unique, and exclusive affection and commitment towards that particular person. There's an unstated intentionality toward this relationship with that individual and there's that same sort of intentionality that's unstated toward our relationship with God and with other people that is governed by love. But the hub around which our lives will revolve is that relationship. It's assumed here in this passage. And we'll talk a little bit more about relationship and how what it looks like when it's governed by love in just a bit. The two-sided coin of love, again we said it's the currency of the kingdom of heaven here, clearly reveals that the relationships that you and I have with God and with every other human being that our lives happen to intersect with is the most important single thing to the heart and the mind of the one who created us. All of life and living as a child of God on this planet is about relationship. I cannot overstate that. This is the beginning and the end of all that God really cares about. Has that sunk in yet? That It's a priority to God. Wrapped up in all we are and all we do here on planet Earth, there is absolutely nothing more singularly important than relationship to God. So when we talk about ministry and doing ministry, the priority must be relationship. Over these past uh, 12 weeks, our summer sermon series, say that 12 times fast, has been about the whole church doing ministry together. Uh, Each preacher has taken his own sort of unique look at things from their own, uh, you know, their own unique vantage point um, at ministry and what it looks like when the whole church body um, strives to serve the Lord together in ministry as a united local body representation of the the body of Christ. And I find it interesting for me that what most readily comes to my mind, to this mind, uh, when I was thinking about ministry and doing ministry together, how to effectively do that, the first thing that comes to my mind is strategy and plan, right? A purpose. A purpose, a process, a goal, right? Um, I see illustrations and graphs and charts in my mind. I see vision, mission, values. You know, the, we, the First Baptist Church of Haverhill, Massachusetts, are a group of folks that want to, more and more each day, become a Jesus-centered community who is seeking gospel redemption for our city by being worshipers and family and servants and missionaries. What comes to my mind first is a well-planned system of programs. And maybe that's what came to your mind when you first saw that title, The Church Doing Ministry Together, that whole of structure and strategy and while these are helpful and necessary in ministry we need to understand that none of this will make any impact for the kingdom if we miss God's priority in all of our busyness and ministry and the priority is relationship the whole church doing ministry uh, ministry together in a way that delights the heart of God is not about programs or stuff we do or lines on a graph, or numbers in a financial ledger, or attendance figures, or curriculum, or a clever strategy, or a snappy logo, or a catchy slogan, or attractive facility, or world-class performance by the, those more visible members of the body on a weekly basis, or state-of-the-art anything. It's about relationship. First and foremost to God... And then to every person God brings across our path. It's about what we do in service a little bit, but it's more about our intentionality in our relationships first with God, the one that we serve, and to other people, those that God brings providentially into our lives. I saw a recent study, very recent study. Um, that my wife pointed out by the Barna Group, uh, stating that as many as one in five, listen to this, this is like this past couple weeks, as many as one in five churches may possibly close permanently within the next 18 months as a result of this pandemic. That's a startling number. One in five. But it's not really all that surprising if you step back and look at it, given all that's happened over the past six months. And most of the churches that will not open, they're, they're not going to open for the simple reason that their financials are at a critical point. And, and that is almost completely due, according to this study, to a significant drop in attendance. But more, it's more than that. It's also behind and underneath all of that struggle is a, a, a realization that maybe came a little bit too late. And I'm quoting here, the relationships that they thought were much deeper with people were actually not as deep as they expected. And that seems to be the crux of why one in five churches may close in the next six months. Relationships are important to us, to all of us. Relationships can be fragile, and we all know that relationships are messy, right? Just go to a family reunion. But relationship is the primary foundation that our life is to be built on. It's vital to us who are to bear the image of God, who have the image of God and are to reflect it and live a life that's pleasing to him. God's created us for, uh, for uh, relationship and he's designed us really with a natural hunger for love and for deep and meaningful relationships. First with himself, and then also with other human beings. We were never, ever meant to do this life alone. That's not God's plan. Relationships are important. As a matter of fact, there's nothing more important to the heart of God <clears throat> than relationship. But let's, <clears throat> let's start with what Jesus says uh, is our first priority in all of this, <clears throat> what he says is, what? Love the Lord your God. Your relationship to God, number one, is your first priority. We need to understand that relationship, or put it another way, community, is not only the most important thing to the heart of God, it's also at the very core of who God is. From eternity past, God has existed, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, in perfect and beautiful and eternal unity and harmony and fellowship. Relationship, that give and take and intentional pursuit of another, is, the very, is at the very core of who God is. It's at the core of his nature. It's everything that he is. And ultimately... It defines, it really does, define all that God is and all that he does. Because everything flows out of that triune relationship. See, there's nothing that God is or does that exists in a vacuum. <clears throat> and, or, or that's uh, isolated from relationship. Like It's constant. We can see this in the person of God, that it's constant, it's intentional, it's a vital interaction with one another, in this case with himself in three persons. And this is why, if you want an illustration of this, this is why Jesus cries from the cross, his cry from the cross is so significant. (inaudible) Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most of the time we read it, why have you forsaken me? I don't think that's what Jesus had in his heart, and his mind. I think he's. It was Lama Sabak. Da me, me. Why have you, God, with whom I've existed throughout eternity past, <laughs> forsaken me? Because until that very moment, when the Father looked away in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, won't go there. But He looked away from the Son as Jesus um, is a. Uh, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, as it says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus, the Christ, God's only son, the second person of the Trinity, had never, throughout all of eternity past, had never, and, and really only for a brief but agonizing moment, until he cried, Tetelestai, right? It is finished. He had never been separated from the Father or from the Spirit, ever. So this uh, Trinitarian relationship is not a sterile or sort of obligatory or de facto relationship. You know, I'm God, so I have to have this relationship with myself. This is a profound and holy and pure and eternal love that permeates the relationship that we see, and it flows out from God to us. And we, as recipients of the mercies uh, uh, that, that we have because of Christ, we get to bask in the glory of it. We get to uh, benefit from it. We get to see its beauty and experience its power as it flows out from uh, that perfect love. So that's why, above all else, God demands from us love. And we grow to understand from Scripture that this love towards God is, is a, a, a supernatural, I was going to say natural, but it's really a supernatural result of and a reflection of his love for us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 and verse 19 also says that we love because he, God, first loved us. Love originates in God, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And is poured out through his Son on his cross, First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and is then reflected in his image bearers, that is in us, and then through us, as we love God and as we love one another. Again, First John chapter 4, verses 12 and 16 and 17. So just a hint, look at First John if you want to understand the love of God. And thankfully, we realize early on, some of us, most of us, in our walk with the Lord, that everything, especially, not just also, but especially this one most important thing to the heart of God, love, and the relationship that we're to have with him, even that, and most especially that, ultimately is only produced by the working of the Spirit of God in me. I don't even produce that. It's the supernatural power of the Word of God at work in our hearts. I'm not capable of producing this love that God requires of me on my own. Redemption, from start to finish, is all of God and nothing of me. That's the gospel, right? That's what the gospel is all about. This is a vital distinction at this point. It's really important that you understand that, uh, this concept at this point in the discussion. We've established that Jesus uh, sums up the Old Testament law in two linked commands, right? Love God, love your neighbor. But we are no more capable of fulfilling the short list, right, than we are of fulfilling the letter or even the spirit of those 613 commands of Mosaic law. We are no more capable of producing the love that God requires of us then we are producing all of the demands of the law. The gospel says unequivocally that it is God and God alone that saves sinners. All of my salvation from start to finish, from regeneration to justification to sanctification, of which this is a part, to glorification, it's all of grace and all of God. But this love relationship is essential to living in the reality of who you and uh, and I are in Christ. And the reality is God is jealous for our love. He's righteously and justifiably jealous that he be the first and foremost in our hearts. Now, the nation of Israel, we're going to go to an example in a minute of how not to be, nation of Israel, like you and I, would be apart from from Christ, experience the wrath of God and his jealousy. God who should have been the one desire, the one true love for the nation of Israel. But they walked away, they rejected, and they abandoned the Lord for other no-gods, as Eugene Peterson calls them. They abandoned their God and their Redeemer for other loves. And you and I do the same thing every day. We'll talk about that in a little more, a little little bit. There are many helpful passages uh, to understand um, how important this covenant of love is to God. But here in Jeremiah... um, we're going to look at a, a passage in uh, Jeremiah chapter 22. I'm going to read it from the message, which is, um, it's been described as uh, an idiomatic paraphrase translation, um, and it employs the dynamic equivalence method of translation. All that being translated means, it's not strictly speaking a paraphrase, but it's a translation, uh, and, and actually a very good translation of the original hebrew aramaic and greek very accurate and true to the original languages and uh sorry eugene peterson is with the lord now but he was a um pastor for more than 30 years and uh, a theologian a bible teacher um scholar um author and poet even and um and the way he described it really is that, you know, when, when those original people read those original letters or heard those original letters, the original hearers and readers, they understood instantly, right, what was being said. They didn't have to go to a library to figure it out. So that's how, why he did this translation. Anyway, Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 1 to 3 says, God's orders... Go to the royal palace and deliver this message. This is God talking to Jeremiah. Say, listen to what God says. O king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you and your officials and all the people who go in and out of these palace gates, this is God's message. Attend to matters of justice. Set things right between people. Rescue victims from their uh, exploiters. Don't take... Advantage of the homeless, the orphans, the widows. Stop murdering. If you obey these commands, then kings who follow in the line of David will continue to go in and out of these palace gates, mounted on horses and riding in chariots, they and their officials and the citizens of Judah. But if you don't obey these commands, then I swear God's decree, this palace will end up a heap of rubble. In verses 8 and 9, travelers from all over will come through here and say to one another, why would God do such a thing to this wonderful city? And they'll be told, because they walked out on the covenant of their God, took up with other gods, and worshipped them. God's command is that we love him first and that we love him most. And he gives us a really clear description of what that love looks like. Our love for God is not to be something that's limited to one segment of my life or my being or aspect of my humanity. He says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first, the great and first commandment. In a parallel passage in Mark chapter 12, in verse 30, uh, that statement goes a little further and says uh, that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The point being this, in our relationship with God, there's nothing that should be held back or kept for ourselves or for something else or someone else. Our love for God should totally permeate all of our passion, all of our individuality, All of our intellect and all of our personal resources. Sadly, we replace God in our hearts all the time, and it happens so frequently and so habitually that we don't even notice anymore. And we may even chalk it up to just being normal. It's what normal people do. We routinely substitute other loves for God. I know you're scratching your head, even though you may not be doing it physically. We routinely substitute other idols for God. We routinely worship at the altar of lesser no-gods and rarely, if ever, take notice of it. Our worship and our adoration is to be reserved for God alone. Our hearts are to be occupied by him alone, and that occupation is meant to be permanent and continuous. Every day, every moment of our lives, we're to love God. But many other things, and as it happens, created things, because that's all there is. There's God and created things, right? Those are the things that come between us and God. They easily slip in under our spiritual radar, and they supplant what God's place should be in my heart and in your heart. His reign over our hearts. Even if it's just for a moment it's easy for us to give our hearts to the creation rather than the creator. We easily and often find ourselves mirroring what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 uh, and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools in exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And sadly, we've seen maybe more clearly than ever lately, that this nation that we live in is not unlike Romans 1. You can see that a little more when I read the whole passage. And God's people, Israel, were like this, but sadly also, you and I are like this, if we'll be honest with ourselves. Again, I'm going to read from the message because I like the way that he says it. Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. It's a long passage, but I think it's very helpful. But God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate. As people try to put a shroud over truth. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. But the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes, as such, can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. Sound familiar? They pretended to know it all. They were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. And the God we bless, the God who blesses us. Oh, yes, worse followed. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men, all lust, no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love and godless and loveless wretches. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering with them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious, backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering, and cheating. Looking at them, or look at them, mean spirited, venomous, fork tongued, God bashers, bullies, swaggerers. Insufferable windbags keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way, stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded. And it's not as if they didn't know better. They know perfectly well. They're spitting in God's face, and they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. (laughs) Sound familiar? What's easiest to do now is to reflect that and see that in our society. But what God wants you to do is to see that in your own heart. Your heart and my heart is just as dark. It's true, we haven't bowed down to a stone or a wooden image. But we easily and often give our hearts to things that we substitute for God. And, and I know, like me, you really want to know God and you want to love God and know that you're loving him in the way that you should. So, so what's the easiest way for me to, to know if I love God? How can I know for sure that I'm really obeying this command? What does it look like in my daily life? So the reality is we don't see ourselves as idolaters, but we are we actually probably think that it's impossible to know what's really inside my heart and to know whether I am an idolater or not. But really it's possible, and actually it's it's pretty easy to see it. One of the ways that's um, easiest to detect that we have those idols that are of our own making in our heart is by our emotional reactions to circumstances. When the circumstances of life, no matter what they are, whether they're trivial or or very significant, emotions are like flashing neon signs. You know, like that no vacancy sign at the motel. Only they don't just tell you that someone's there. (laughs) They tell you who is there. That's what your emotions do. What we worship, what we really worship, what we love, what we really genuinely love, what is the most valuable to us is going to fill our hearts and it's easy to define and easy to spot. Do you remember the, um, do you remember the, the water bottle illustration? Remember this? Maybe you don't. Magical. Watch what happens. Got my speaker wet. I got the floor wet. Oh, goodness. What are you doing, Pastor Mike? What the heck is wrong? Why is the water spill? Because I, I shook the bottle, right? I, I hit the bottle. I disturbed it, right? No. Why is the carpet wet? Because I, I shook the bottle, right? No. The carpet is wet because there's water inside the bottle. What's inside came out when it was shaken. So it's not the shaking that causes the water to spill and the carpet to be wet. It's because there's water in the bottle that causes it to end up on the floor and the floor becomes wet and the speaker's wet. we got budget for that, right? I'm just kidding. It's, uh, it's the Luke chapter 6 and verse 45 principle. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When life shakes us, what's at the center of my heart will become obvious to me and everyone around me. What's inside will come out. I can say I love God. I can think I love God. I can really want to love God. But when life shakes me, what comes out? and what comes out will reveal what I really love and what I really worship. Let's start with something easy. So when I complain to God about an inconvenient circumstance, no matter what it is, you make it up in your own mind. And when I do that, when I, comp- uh, when I complain to him, what am I doing? <clears throat> I'm holding him in contempt in my heart for not doing such a bang-up job of being God. God. I'm certainly not loving God first or foremost, and I'm certainly not worshiping God. My heart is not surrendered to God in those moments. There's an idol of the heart that has taken over my heart, taken over the throne of my heart. And in this instance, I'm worshiping at the altar of convenience, in the temple of the God circumstance. I'm saying that what's most important to me, what I treasure most and what I value most, is a smoothly running Life, one that closely follows my personal expectations for any given day or any given circumstance. I'm saying that if I could manage to tailor the various circumstances of my life to my standards, you know, happy circumstances, comfortable circumstances, easy circumstances, then I can be, and I will be, joyful and content, not angry and frustrated. As if your plan and my plan and not God's plan for my day and for this situation, for this conversation, for the schedule, for whatever the circumstance of life is, that my plan is what's best and not God's. The situation is ultimately out of control, like about 99% of life, right? But God is always in control. And when I react in flesh-driven ways because well, ultimately, it's because I don't really trust God with my life. Because if I understand the sovereignty of God and the fact that he's always there and the fact that he's always in control, I'll understand that he has a purpose. But I don't trust God in the circumstances or with the circumstances of my day. And I don't love and worship him or his plan or his purposes or even his, his character, really, in those moments. I'm not living out this command in those moments. I doubt his goodness, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his love, his compassion, his faithfulness, and it can go on and on and on when I react this way. So I become impatient and frustrated, ungracious, angry, anxious, fearful, maybe even depressed. I may even lash out at somebody or something. My emotions take control and I can't see God or his hand or his providence in anything in any of this, I only see the situation and I'm convinced that I have a better way for things to go. I've made it clear that my intention is not to have a love relationship with God. This is key. By my actions, that love relationship with God that should be a for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health and death being the only thing that changes my relationship I've made it clear that my primary relationship is is with what's created, not with the creator. And in this case, in this instance, it's circumstance, human circumstance. In those moments, I'm not really interested in my relationship with God. I've made it clear to him that what interests me most right now, because I've been, I won't take the lid off, shaken, right? Right? What interests me most right now is my situation. Not the God who created, orchestrated, and controls the situation and the circumstance that seems to shake me. And Really, I've become a functional atheist in those moments. I've made it clear that not only do I not understand who God is... And the little that I do know about him, I really don't like. That's what I've said. What's happened is I bought the enemy's lie that what my heart desires the most, the contentment, the fulfillment of my deepest human needs, must be met and can only be met by something created and not by God himself, the creator. What's happened is I've convinced my heart that the things that only God can give love that satisfies, joy that never goes away, peace that gives an anchor of security to my soul can be found in circumstances and in stuff and in people and in places, in created things. My primary relationship is with the creation. I look to it for what I need most. When it fails to meet my needs, and it will, I fall to pieces instead of falling to my knees in prayer. And when I find my attitude and my words and my actions, but particularly my emotions, because they're that window to your heart and my heart, and they show me what I truly love and worship, when these are in contradiction to what the Scriptures say, then God is not in those moments, my first love and my foremost love. What I need to notice is am I treasuring in that moment what God should, according to me, be giving me or doing for me or allowing me to experience by way of circumstance or am I treasuring God and him alone? Is he enough or does everything that goes on in my life have to be according to my plan or is God enough That's what it means to love God with heart, soul, and mind. His will, his way, his wisdom, his best for me. Is he enough? And really the question is, there's several questions that it raises, is God so attractive that he can inspire a wholly disinterested love, a completely disinterested love, disinterested in anything other than him? Can God be loved for himself alone, or merely for what he does and gives? Is he a being who is worshiped and loved by his children, or is he merely an idol to be fed, flattered, and feared? Is Christ so supremely attractive that my soul will seek him because of what he is in himself? Because his love is so holy and so tender that he satisfies me and not simply because of his mercies bestowed, bestowed nor what is far deeper, even the blessings he has given. In this command, God is clearly asking for your worship of only him. He wants all that you think and say and do to glorify him and only him. John Piper put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's nothing more important to the heart of God than a relationship with him and with others. So first, your relationship to God is your first priority, and... Your relationship with people is, well, also your first priority. <laughs> Let me try to explain. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew 22, 39 to 40. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now, there's clearly a first command, right, and a second command in order of importance, of priority, and significance. But it's interesting that Jesus prefaces this second command by saying a second is like it. He's not pointing out a difference here as we would think he would, or saying that this second command is clearly subordinate to the first command, but he is drawing a clear connection between these two distinct commands, They are alike in some way. And my inclination is to think that they're alike, their likeness and their similarity has to do with two important things. First, they're both about love. And second, they're also both about relationship. And then to wrap up his declaration, Jesus says, on these two commands depends all the law and the prophets. That is, every one of the 613 commandments of the of uh, of the Mosaic Law and everything that the prophets had to say about God and for God and what God wanted, all of those things, the entire New Testament, uh, Old Testament Scripture, can be summed up in love for God and love for people. It's pretty significant. Seems almost a little too simple, doesn't it? A little too simplistic. But in these two commands is wrapped up not only all of the Old Testament and all the new. Uh, all all the Old Testament, but also all of the New Testament, particularly all of the gospel, which is the central message of all of the word of God as Christ is at the center of all of it and on every page of Scripture. So these two commands are not just uh, like a shortened version, a Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament, but they're separate commands of equal importance according to Jesus Together, this is why it's significant, this is why I'm saying they're both your first priority. Because together, and only together, according to Jesus at least, right, they sum up all of what God requires of us. And together, they highlight the priority of relationship in life and ministry. Make it clear that that's what my life should be about. Remember the passage in uh, Jeremiah 22 that we looked at? Um, Did you notice that the idea of faithfully following God or obeying him that, that God lays out involves, what does he say, go to church, um, get involved in a lot of programs, um, do stuff to impress God and other people, right? That's not what he says at all. God's message is this. Attend to matters of justice. Set things right between people. Rescue victims from their exploiters. Don't take advantage of the homeless, the orphans, and widows. Stop murdering. Pretty basic stuff, right? What we're seeing is that loving God or worshiping God has everything to do with how we treat other people. That's what he's saying there. The nation of Israel wasn't meeting even the most basic of standards for what it means to love others. They were abusing the most vulnerable really people of their own family, their extended family. What Jesus says here is that we're to love our neighbor, which is defined in Luke 10. We're not just to love and love everyone, but particularly he says neighbor. He doesn't say love friend or love family or love the brethren. He says love your neighbor. And uh, in Luke 10, that, um, which is another parallel passage to this passage, um, it's where Jesus describes these two commands as uh, the way to eternal life, although he leaves out the part about uh, his soon-coming sacrifice being the only way that that's going to happen. <clears throat> but he says it's all here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and what, he, what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that our neighbor is anyone and everyone, even a stranger, even an enemy, that's who we're to love. Think of your life and uh, the relationships that you have in terms of concentric circles, Um, right? Just center, circle, and they go out from there. We have those people in our lives who occupy the smallest circles near the middle, close to the center of our lives, our spouse, our children, our family, and those who are further out, our friends, our acquaintances, and so on, and the circle widens. But there is a hub around which all of life turns, right, in terms of relationships, and it's who at the center? God at the center, according to Jesus. But everyone, even the stranger, everyone else, every human being that we come in contact with, everyone in our entire life, that person is to be considered our neighbor. Even the stranger that you'll never see again, you see once in your life maybe passing you in traffic or in a store or someplace, You'll never see him again. God considers him your neighbor. It's easy to love our friends, isn't it? It's easy to love people that love us back. It's easy to love people that we're attracted to in some way, or that are kind to us, or or, who are bound to us by blood. But when we uh, get frustrated or angry with someone... That's not an easy thing to love someone. When when they've done something against me, when they've sinned against me, when they've hurt me in some way, it's hard to love, isn't it? That's not an easy thing. And if we look at this neighbor principle and loving your neighbor, it doesn't matter what your relationship is to them. That's why he says neighbor. It doesn't matter even if it's a very close relationship like your spouse. Jesus says Bottom line is, love your neighbor. As a matter of fact, he also says, love your enemy. In that moment, he or she may be that, take that place. <clears throat> but this love command, like the previous one, has a standard of excellence. We're love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. How much am I supposed to love my neighbor then? The question is, really has a simple answer. Jesus doesn't make it real complicated. Love others as much as and in the same way as you love yourself. Um, That tired and misguided and flawed and and really kind of ludicrous philosophy of the 60s and 70s that said that the answer to our deepest psychological needs is, it all begins with self-love, right? That's what you're going to hear if you go to a therapist. You and I know exactly what Jesus means here even though those statements are made. No one has ever, in the history of all the world, not ever, not once, not one instance, not one example, ever had to teach their kids how to love themselves. Right? Every human baby is a self-centered anarchist. That's what they are. They will have their own way, and you will comply. And I will do what it takes to make you comply. They come out of the womb loving only themselves. And a parent's job is to teach them to love anyone other than themselves. Provided, hopefully, without the parents going to jail. If we allow them to live through those teenage years, and those of you that have had teenagers or have teenagers, if we allow them to get to that time... It's a win, right? If they're remotely, even remotely, unselfish. So we easily love ourselves because we think that we're the smartest. We think we're the best. We think we're the nicest. We think we're the most talented. We're the most important thing that God has ever created. And we are the center of our universe. If left to our own devices, that's how we are. And that's exactly why, if we want to be like Jesus, Philippians chapter 2... Verses 3 to 5 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to further describe what Christ was like. You and I naturally think that I'm the most important. And what I think about most, what I dwell on most, what comes to my mind the most is me, my stuff, my plans, my interests, my goals, my priorities, me and mine, not anyone else. When you and I become, those of you who have had the privilege of becoming a parent, um there are short intervals where we see at our core even our own self-centeredness not just children but that you and I there's a beginning when we first become parents when we can be somewhat selfless right getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning for a feeding or whatever it may be but you and I can easily see even, even in those instances how self-centered and self-important we are and God knows that well so What Jesus is saying here, really what he's saying is, so here's the thing. You know how to love yourself. You know how much you love yourself more than anyone else or anything, right? Well, that's exactly how I need you to love others. That deeply, that consistently, that intentionally. Because that is our intention every moment of every day, is us. And not just the people you get to pick, but everybody. So this is the, uh, the so what part of the sermon as I wrap it up. So what does it look like to love God with all my heart and soul and mind? What is, it, uh, what, what is it that should be different from right now? What should change if I say I love God? What does it look like for someone to love everybody that God allows to come into our lives? No matter what place they are in that circle, in those circles. What does selfless, others-focused love look like? I need to understand what it means to really worship God and to really love God and to love others. God wants our individual devotion. First, I need to be intentional God needs me to think of him first every day. I know that's what your wife expects, guys. I know that's what your husband expects, ladies. This is what God expects. He needs to be my first thought every day and my last thought every night. So time in prayer and in the scriptures is important. It's helpful during those times. He needs to be the love of my my heart every day, not just on Sunday. Second, I need to be present, not just intentional. You know how your wife says, guys, you're listening, but you're not really here. (laughs) You're not really here. Be there in the moment. And be there in your relationship with Jesus. And so what I want to do is to, to make that happen is to walk with him throughout every day. To remember that his spirit lives in me that he's the unseen guest at every place that I go, right? He's in the empty chair. He's the one that hears every conversation. He's the one that's involved in every activity unseen. He is a witness to every thought and every meditation of my heart. So I need to intentionally set aside specific times, yep, to focus my heart on God, and to speak to him and to hear from him but I also need to um, as one author Brother Lawrence said practice the presence of God I need to remember that he's always with me to comfort and to guide me I need to remember that along with that most often repeated command to fear not God says because I'm with you the idea of Praying without ceasing comes to mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. It's really, it's an easy thing. It's It's not complex. It's really just an unbroken conversation throughout the day with the always present spirit of God. Next thing is to be authentic, not just intentional, present in the relationship, but be authentic. God wants me to give him my Heart, not someone else's. I'm to love him with all my soul. Right, That's the other part. My soul and its focus means my true self and its focus. The word psuche, the Greek word for psyche or translated psyche here is translated soul, actually. Translated psyche in English for um, that part of the world. Soul is the inner self. It's the real you and me behind these eyeballs. What it means is that God wants your love. He wants your words. He wants your unique way of thinking and feeling and expressing yourself. He wants your worship of God. It needs to fit you, not someone else's idea of what worship looks like. You don't need to mimic someone else. He knows you anyway, right? So be you before him. Next thing is... To not only be intentional, be present, be authentic, but be gracious in loving others specifically. You always treat yourself with the utmost grace, don't you? And care and kindness and attention, and you give yourself a pass all of the time, constantly. So we're to treat others this way, to forgive, to try to restore relationships, to try to reconcile with those who've wronged us And then lastly, we need to be attentive. And this really goes hand in hand with being intentional. Pay attention to others. This means that they are the ones that occupy your thoughts. Their concerns become your concerns. Their agenda becomes your agenda. Their sorrows become your sorrows, and their joys become a a chance for you to rejoice. When they're burdened, Don't be so self-absorbed that you can't bear that burden with them. Share the load of their burden. So there's obviously a whole lot more that we could say when we talk about what it looks like to love God and love our neighbor. And it seems like a very simplistic thing that Jesus says, but it's extremely profound. And it's what all of life that pleases God is wrapped up in. There's nothing more important to the heart of God than relationship. We're to love God and then to love others as a reflection of his love for us in every way that God allows us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace in our lives that's shown to us through the cross of Christ who was selfless and gave himself out of love, love for himself, for that triune God, but love for us as well. And so, God, help us to understand that and reflect it each day as we consider trying to serve you together here in this church, no matter how that uh, looks, no matter what that looks like, what kind of ministry we're involved in. Help us, God, to realize that our relationship with you has to be first and that everything else in life, everyone else in life, has to come first before us. And when we do that, God, we will please your heart. And we're, uh, we're grateful for your word, in Jesus' name. Amen.